Audio sermons from Peachtree Christian Church. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, maltreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets, and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My friends, it is a delight to be with you in worship on this fine fall morning. Before we think about this very challenging parable, one of Jesus' stories in the temple that gets him into trouble, I'd like to address some things going on in the news. I think we're all aware of what's happened in Israel, Gaza Strip, Palestine. I wanted to say to you something about it. Theology matters. America has long since been pro-Israel, and one of the reasons why is because of a theology about the way we imagine things to go in the end times, or some theologies that were quite popular. Now, sometimes this was very pronounced and conscious, and sometimes this happened on a very unconscious level, but over time, you have a sense that it just makes sense to be pro-Israel. Now, that theology, in my estimation, is very suspect, and you still may be pro-Israel for political reasons or you may be against Israel for political reasons. Here's the theology that's not questionable. Here's the theology that all the traditions of Christianity holds on to. Here's the red velvet thread through each tradition, Catholic and Protestant and every kind in between, is that God honors life. That God honors the dignity and value and worth of each and every concrete, irreplaceable human being. That we are all in the great human family and we are indeed all children of God. Go by the name Christian, Jew, Muslim. Be an Arab, a European, be an Israeli. God loves you. And I think God, I think God's heart breaks when his children kill his children. So what do we do? I think I'd like to say that we as a church, but if I can't speak for it, I'm speaking for myself. 
we should be paying witness to the terrible tragedy of terrorism. We should speak out against it. We should stand in the gap in prayer. And when we have opportunity, we should act against it in love. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't whitewash vengeful death either. We should mourn with those who are caused to be homeless and those who are innocent. We should want justice. We should realize that justice begins very close to our own hearts and that we are all frail, faulty, broken human beings in need of redemption. I hope that you understand that. We are all in need of redemption. I texted with my friend Rabbi Berg across the street this week. I said, my congregation supports you. We love you. How can we be with you? And he wrote me and said that many people in that congregation are reeling. They're gutted because of their ancestral ties to Israel. But more and more importantly, that many people in the congregation at the temple have loved ones who were killed in bombings. And several have had family members or friends taken hostage. I don't know what you say to somebody, so I tried my best to say, how can I be there? And he simply said, if your congregation would like to come worship with us on a Friday evening, we would love to welcome you, which that's always been an open door. The history of this church is one of deep and profound friendship with the temple. We invited our doors for when they were bombed back in the mid-century. And I'm glad to call them friends and the rabbi friend. So I recommend to you and encourage you, if you have a free Friday evening, to show solidarity and love, to go to those across the street and worship and say, I'm from Peachtree and we just want you to know that we're with you. And you're crying, we cry with you. And your pain, we sense it too. And we wanna share a hope with you. Can we all agree on that? If we can't, I think we can all agree that we'll meet together here in love and in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we're so very thankful for the breath of life for each and every gift that is each breath you've given us. Special gift indeed. As we breathe in and out with gratitude in this moment, we remember that your spirit is a gentle and mighty wind animating us, giving us life. Send your spirit freshly now because you and I know without you I can do nothing. And we pray that your Holy Spirit blow through this place and remove all stale air, that nothing but the sweet aroma and fragrance of your redemptive love be made manifest in this place and anywhere my voice may be heard and where our testimonies go. Let it be felt by the actions of our lives. Let it be sown with the words of our lips. Let it be the song we sing and the path we walk. It is in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name we pray and God's people together say, Amen. Take a knee, men. That's what he said. It was the first day of football practice. My cohort and I were entering into the varsity ranks. The year before, our team had gone to the playoffs and we knew that we were looking like we weren't going to be a very 
big contending school any longer. My class and the class above me and below me was very small in stature. For whatever reason, every other football team we played, we were outsized significantly. You could see it if you were someone on the chain gang. Their team's helmets were here and ours were here. And we had about a third of the squad of every other school in our conference. A third. So we didn't have reserves and people to come off the bench fresh. Were we tough? Yeah, I think so. Were we pretty good athletes? I think so. Do we have a chip on our shoulder because of what the newspaper said? You bet. And so we showed up excited for football season that first day. And the coach said it again, men, take a knee. We sat there with our helmets as a little support for our hands on our knees, awaiting later on in that first two week cycle of hell week. They called it those, those first weeks you have to get out of the way for the state to let you start hitting each other and, and wear more than just a helmet, but to put on your pads. And we just wanted to get after it. But the coach had words. He started walking up and down like Patton from the movie Patton, as if he were a general giving his troops a what for before battle. And he said that he named the amount of schools that were in the state of Illinois and how many approximate football players there were. And he said, you know, out of all these kids, they're all doing the same thing right now as you are. They're on their knees and they're about to take the gridiron. I didn't know what a gridiron was, but it sounded tough. I'll have one, please. Yeah, it was rousing. And then it got confusing. He stared off as if someone was telling a story and they could see something that no one else could see. You ever hear a story be told like that? He stared off and he said that he would give anything, anything, if he could trade places with us for just one chance. His voice is his voice was cracking, his eyes were welling up with tears, and he believed what he said. He would give anything to be back on the gridiron. And we, in our adolescent minds, thought, well, gee, that's a bit over the top, isn't it? What's all the fuss about? <laughs> it's just football. I think the wisest of us could capture the, the message that it was a special time in our lives, that for those of us who enjoyed playing a game, that's why we're there and we get to play a game and people get to take it way too seriously. And people show up and cheer for you when you get to play a game that you enjoy and how fun is that? And, and really, no other time in life can you do this so freely. I think that's about the wisest that us adolescents could come up with what he was saying, but he was saying much more. I didn't know at the time, but he had been recruited, and I think he was even drafted by the Buffalo Bills or one of the Northeastern teams to be a running back, and he suffered an injury only to go back to the high school he grew up in to be its coach. There was a longing. There was a longing for us to take it seriously and to remember that this is the time of our lives. Stories do a lot of things. Some stories, they, they, they're fables with a pretty simple moral tale. Some stories, well, they inspire. 
other stories, they reveal deep criticisms about cracks within a system or a culture. And, and some arouse anger when they're told. Jesus is telling another story in the temple. Last week's homily was about Jesus telling a different story in the temple, and his stories are going to get him killed here in Matthew's gospel because they are making everybody downright angry at what he's saying. Stories can arouse gossip, make people start talking and spreading that small flame of gossip that becomes a big inferno. I remember once being on the bus. It was uh, the week of show choir tryouts, and I was sitting there. I was in the choir myself, and there was two gals. They got on the bus, and they sat with a third gal, and they were talking about someone who had tried out, and they said, did you see what, she, what song she sang? Do, do you, can you believe she sang that song? Like, it's even in her range. Like, yeah, right, forget it, yeah. And they started throwing all kinds, I think what the young people called is shade. They're mocking her outfit. They're mocking her hair. And they tried to pull the third girl into it to triangulate. You know, that's a sophisticated primate thing we do. They pull her into it. And this one young woman, they said, what did you think? Did you see her hair? Did you hear, that, hear about that song? And instead of criticize that third gal on the bus, I think they call people like her wiser than beyond their years. She didn't engage. She'd say, oh, no, I didn't hear it, but I heard your song, and you did a great job. What made you choose that song? And they tried again and to talk about her outfit and say, oh, no, I didn't see it, but, but I really like your shirt. Did you get that at the mall? Adolescents really do know how to uh, let the gossip roll, don't we? But it's not just adolescents. Sometimes it's adults, and sometimes it's the most elite, the people who should know better, because right here in this story is gossip aplenty. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees have been talking about Jesus. They've been talking about his stories, and they're not having it. They're not excited about what he's been saying at all, because he has been public enemy number one to them, because they have been public enemy number one to him. He has been critiquing them. They are the religious elite, and he's come looking for true faith, and he's found it lacking in their lives here in the temple. And so he tells another one of his temple stories. For those of you who study the Bible a little bit since Sunday school, you might know a lot of Jesus' stories are called parables. They're usually kind of stories from everyday life, but you might remember from last week, I said that parable is very much akin to the concept of a riddle. They're, they're not always on the nose. And they're meant to tease you and to be figured out. And here's a riddle for you. The story that Jesus comes up with. It's a tough one. It's a doozy. I read it today again thinking, do I have this quite right? You see, there's a king and he's going to throw a wedding banquet. And he invites a bunch of people to come to the wedding banquet. And, and, and the people who are inviting the other people to come, I mean, they, unappreciatively or with hatred, I don't know. Uh, but, but there's like killing involved. I mean, that must be some wedding. But then he invites some still other people and they just don't want to show up. And so he says, that's enough. Just go out into the streets and find me anybody. 
worthy and non-worthy, good and bad. Just bring me people to the wedding. He's got the fatted calf going. The, the smell and aroma of the meats are going. The bread is hot. In first century Jewish weddings, they, they weren't one-night affairs. These banquets lasted an entire week. This is going to be a festivity of feasting for a week. What a gift to give other people. And he has to go invite people he wouldn't otherwise invite. And so now the banquet hall is full and that king comes down from his throne. And he walks around and he sees one of his guests, but his guest is not wearing a wedding gown. His guest isn't dressed for the wedding. They're not wearing black tie. They're wearing Levi's and a t-shirt from Target. And he asks this guest who's about to put some of this delicious food in his mouth, <clears throat> what are you wearing? And he, <clears throat> um, just this. And the king, the king orders that this person be uh, tied up, taken out, and then it's this fire gnashing of teeth language, a judgment language. Really? Because remember how Jesus started the story? This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. <laughs> Man, are you confused like me? This is a doozy. Well, it, it, it turns out that in these kinds of stories, different characters represent different people who are listening. The king, now that, that's got to be God, right? Because this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, and here's a king. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, last week's text, there was the, the vintner, the one who owned a vineyard. That, that was God. That made a lot of sense. And now we have the servants, the people who are supposed to be inviting people to the banquets. And the first group of people who are invited to the banquets are, are dealt with by the servants really harshly. They're in fact killed. They're killed for being invited by the king. Perhaps those are the prophets, the people of old and the people from recent day who've spoken out truth to power, spoken the will of God to the people of God who otherwise will find it inconvenient to hear the will of God. So what happens to the prophets so often? They're not heard because they're chased sometimes killed. Still others are invited, the people are invited, and they don't come. And still more, there's this group of, of people who are good, people who are bad, or people who are worthy and unworthy. And this one last one who gets the ire of the king, he appears, appears to be wearing the wrong clothes. Is this what the kingdom of heaven is like? Is this, is this what you're like, God? Do you just indiscriminately go about killing people and making harsh judgments over people's clothing and kick them out? Is that who God is? Is that what Jesus is saying in the temple? A lot like last week, I think this story is saying something to a particular group. See, last week's story, he was criticizing the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite. And that's still his audience. He's telling another story to follow up the first one. This is the sequel. He is giving more shots to the body of the religious elite. You know who they are. They're the ones who, they belong, duh. 
And I say that with all that candor. They belong. Duh. They're the ones, I mean, they're the ones who, they've been there. They know which pew to sit in. They know when they're supposed to stand up and sit down in church. You know, a lot of folks that don't go to church feel uncomfortable in church because they don't want to stand. They don't know when to sit. They don't know when to say something back. And when the communion cup comes, do I take it? Do I put it back? And you see them watching everybody else trying to figure out where their place is because they've just come on the scene a little bit lately. They haven't been around a time or two. Their family's names are not etched into the building and they can't say they've been there for generations and they look the part man they have got it you know the people who are the religious elite they they dress the right way I mean they they've got all the right colors of ties to match the liturgical seasons you might say that these religious elite are, are notable because they wear black robes and stoles and stand high up in marble pulpits And it's that group that Jesus looks for a faith and finds it wanting. And so now the king says, just let anybody in. And then there's this problem. There's this, still this one who's come in and he's not quite dressed right. You see, most of us, we kind of end, we kind of end with the goal of being part of the elite, that we just belong that's expected of us to be there. It's the natural order of things. That's good enough. I go to church, that's good enough. But it seems like Jesus is saying in the story, there's something more, there's something deeper, there's something weightier. And it reminds me of that movie about Michael Jordan and uh, Nike shoes recently that came out. Have you all seen that film? In it, Michael Jordan, you never see his face. It's always the back of his head because the main character is his mama. Jordan loved the kind of shoe that everyone loved back in the day, Adidas. And I still like Adidas. I've got Adidas shell top shoes from the 1980s. I got them. I rock them all the time. I look good. And Converse had a little deal with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, but it was a little bit of money to wear a boring looking shoe. Michael Jordan was holding out for Adidas, but his mom said, son, let's listen to this company called Nike. Now, Nike was a, a startup running shoe brand with a very small market share in athletic shoes. And when you said the word Nike to a basketball player, they would have laughed because it was just boring running shoes. But this little brand with a Greek name, which means to overcome, they sold Mrs. Jordan not on a shoe in a cash grab, but on making him a household name, an icon that rose above sports. And to this day, I was watching college football last night. You know, there's teams that are sponsored by Adidas and Under Armour, and there's some with a Nike swoosh, but there's some teams out there. And I always think if you're a football player, you got to be a little miffed at this. You're, they're not just adverse or sp uh, sponsored by Nike, but it's the Jordan brand. And right there on their football uniform is the jump man dunking a basketball on a football jersey. I'm wearing Air Jordan ones as we speak in the pulpit. You know how many generations of Jordans are out? People buy these things like hotcakes. I don't have to tell you that it's not a question. Even if you don't know sports, you know that name. 
And his mom held out for that because here's the difference. There's the flash in the pan. This is what you come to expect. And then there's something that comes that's deeper than that. It comes with age and it mostly comes though, not just with simple age, with hard fought wisdom. And that is a gravitas. And Mama Jordan had it. And she said, there's something better, son. So where these religious elite are happy just to do the part, just the flashy bit, the the thing everyone expects, Jesus is looking for something more that, that comes with a little more gravitas, a little more weightiness to their spiritual journey. Let me say this. Is this story about etiquette in church? Is this story about the dangers of being a wedding crasher? Is it about church clothes? Emphatically, it is not. It is not about the clothes you wear to church. Remember, these are riddles. These are allegories. I think King went looking for something in his guests. I think the typical guests didn't show because they were unappreciative. See the religious elite. They've had their fill. They don't need any more from the king. I think he's looking for something uh, more from the people who want to come and eat at his table. I think he's looking for the way they don't, not that they dress, but how they clothe themselves. I think he found this person at the wedding and they were not clothed in virtue. They were not clothed in virtue. The virtues, the loyalty and courage, temperance, prudence, faith, hope, love, these things that produce wisdom and a deepness, a richness, a gravitas to ourselves because they are not just about marking boxes off a checklist, but it's about the transformation of something inside. This isn't about what's on the outside. This is a story that's revealing something that's about what's on the inside of us because the thing is the kingdom of God is not about what we are. It's not about how we come to it. It's about who we are. It's not about what you are. It's not about how you come to it, but it's about who you are. That's why the king is harsh with all those who don't show and all those who take him not very seriously. It's almost like he's talking to a bunch of adolescent boys who don't quite get the depth of what they're being called to. Speaking of adolescence, I was reading this book by Krista Tippett this week. This is the book we're reading in my Readings for Wisdom group, Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. She talks about Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a 20th century Catholic French paleontologist who helped discover the Peking man. And he is a philosopher and theologian. This guy was incredible. He comes up with this theory, and this theory is that the universe, he puts the fa- his faith into the cosmic story. So the universe is cosmological and deep time oriented. So he thinks about is everything in the world is just expanding and evolving and growing in its level of divine expression until it has gotten to the place we're at now, which is he calls the new sphere. Okay, what that means is the thinking sphere of the world. 
because at least as far as we know, with human beings, we represent the first time the universe has become self-aware. We are parts of the universe, parts of creation that can think about ourselves, that can ask questions about ourselves, that can laugh at ourselves, that can morally reason in our own minds. We are the thinking part of the universe. And the point is, it's all going somewhere even deeper than that. It's going to unity with God. And where do we see that? We see it in Jesus Christ, where God takes on creation into his own life. God takes on flesh. And, and so ultimately our faith journey follows the same. We are on our journey to become more and more like Christ. But something that he says about this big deep time narrative of the world is that history is at the adolescent point. We're not very deep. Krista Tibbet thinks it's interesting to take that concept of adolescence and apply it to our public life. Listen to this. In America, many features of national public life are also better suited to adolescence than adulthood. We don't do things adults learn to do, like calm ourselves and become less narcissistic. Much of politics and media sends us in the opposite infantilizing direction. Much of politics and media sends us in the opposite infantilizing direction. We reduce great questions of meaning and morality to issues and simplify them to two sides, allowing pundits and partisans to frame them in, in, in irreconcilable extremes. The problem is that's not how we actually think or live. And I scribbled in the margins, true spirituality. What if it's the case? Now bear with me. What if the case is, just like the cosmos, we're just at adolescent phase, what if, what if really spiritually the best of us have just kind of gotten to adolescent phase? Missing the deeper story that's being told to us, the deeper vision from the coach who's saying there's more to this. Missing, missing that gravitas that comes with well-worn wisdom. It's, it's earned, not just through life and, and years, but it's earned through experience in, in the trials of love, in the trials of acceptance, in the trials of virtue. Today, my friends, I think the story tells us that we're all called to be more mature than we are. Maturity means Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like the God who's made himself flesh in Jesus and that God shows us who he is by giving his life for us that we may know him. Self-giving love. The story sounds like God is interested in indiscriminately dispelling people. No, though God gives himself over and lets people choose. That's what our life should look like. A life where we're able and willing to hand ourselves over so that another may flourish. It means to put on the clothes, the right clothes of virtue, which begins with not being judgmental. It begins by worrying about ourselves and what we have standing before us and God before we're concerning ourselves with others. If we really reach that stage of just adolescence, it's really easy for us to sit at lunch tables in our cliques and groups saying they're in and they're out. But what does it really mean to sit at the master's table and to smile and rejoice at every new one that's been included to sit next to you?
something that can only come with depth. 